My name's Randy, and uh, one of the leaders here at the church. Glad to be with you. Glad to have you here. A couple of months ago, we started uh, the series that we're currently in uh, called God's Bailout Package. Um, our goal was to help us as uh, followers of Christ and as people experiencing a challenging season uh, to have a better understanding of God's ways uh, as they pertain to the topic of money and finance so that we can live according to his ways uh, rather than blindly living according to the ways of this world, uh, particularly in this area of money and finance. And when we began the series, uh, we looked at a passage from Second Corinthians where the Apostle Paul describes the outcome that God intends for us when we're living according to his ways, uh, particularly in the area of money and finance. So if you've got a Bible, you want to turn there, we'll have it on the screen. We're looking at 2 Corinthians, uh, particularly chapters 8 and 9, both address a variety of issues uh, related to finances and giving. Uh, Very, very helpful uh, key passages there. Um, In chapter 9, verse 8, highlights this aspect of what we can experience if, in fact, we're living according to God's ways. And then verses 9 through 11 talk about five different uses, biblical uses for money. Four, excuse me, four. Four different uses for money uh, that uh, we're going to be looking at over the next uh, few weeks. And uh, I particularly like the Amplified Translation and how clear it helps this passage uh, be. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. And God is able to make all grace come to you in abundance, so that you may always and under all circumstances and whatever the need be self-sufficient, possessing enough to require no aid or support, and furnished in abundance for every good work and charitable donation. As it is written, he, the benevolent person, scatters abroad. He gives to the poor. His deeds of justice and goodness and kindness and benevolence will go on and endure forever. And God, who provides seed for the sower and bread for eating, will also provide and multiply your resources for sowing and increase the fruits of your righteousness, which manifests itself in active goodness, kindness, and charity. Thus you will be enriched in all things and in every way so that you can be generous And your generosity will bring forth thanksgiving to God. That is a profound passage on God's heart for what our lives are supposed to look like, what he would want for us to experience. Now, I'd like you to notice the superlatives that Paul uses here. All grace in abundance that you may always and under all circumstances, whatever the need, furnished in abundance every good work, enriched in all things and in every way. Those are fairly significant. Now, you know, some of you may know this, maybe not. When Claire and I work with people in uh, communication skills, one of the things that we uh, coach is that when you're engaging someone that you should not use superlatives like never, you never take out the trash. You should not use the word always. You're always rude. Or even all. All you ever think about is yourself. We coach that those aren't very helpful in most circumstances. However, when God uses those superlatives, they're not only okay, they are awesome because they represent and present his desire for us. He wants these things to be true in our lives always. Always. 
Read with me again verses 10 and 11. And I want to identify these four different biblical uses, usages for money. God who provides seed for the sower and bread for eating will also provide and multiply your resources for sowing and increase the fruits of your righteousness, which manifests itself in active goodness, kindness, and charity. Firstly, Paul speaks of seed for sowing. I understand from this passage that that is referring to the tithe. 10% of the revenue that comes into our home that is holy, that is seed, to be set apart for God and his purposes through the local church. Mariana Danley taught on this just a couple weeks ago. Seed for sowing. That's, that's a first uh, element of a biblical use for money. Secondly, Paul speaks of bread for eating. That is what is needed for our sustenance, our needs, our personal needs. And that's what I'm going to touch on and talk about this morning. Thirdly, Paul speaks of multiplication of resources for sowing. So if seed for sowing connects to the tithe, then additional resources for sowing are monies or funds that are above and beyond for multiplication and not just so we get to have nice things, but for particularly the multiplication of God's kingdom work. This is the principle of living within our means, what we're going to call living a closed circle, and then the investment that comes from sowing the surplus money that is available to us for God's kingdom purposes. Does that make sense? If we have a closed circle, which we're going to talk about, it's going to take a couple of weeks, the next two weeks I'm going to do that, then we know and have answered the question, how much is enough? When we've done that, and then God does his thing by bringing additional resources, those resources are for the purpose of multiplication of sowing. And we're going to talk about that, but that's what God's heart is. Finally, Paul speaks of increased fruits of righteousness. Now, keep in mind, the context of this passage is all regarding money and its usages. So when Paul speaks of fruits of righteousness, he is not primarily talking about our character or how nice we are to people. He is primarily talking about the use of money for righteous purposes in contrast to the use of money for unrighteous purposes, particularly charity or generous giving. Now, there is goodness and kindness there, but again, it's connected to this aspect of generosity. Fruits of righteousness that manifests in goodness to others, kindness to others, and generosity, generous giving. So, for um, legitimate uh, biblical uses, usages, or uses of money. Seed for the sower, the tithe, which we've already talked about. Bread for eating, our personal needs. Multiplication of resources for sowing, investment for God's kingdom. And then fruits of righteousness, generous giving. So before we head into uh, bread for eating this morning, let's pray. Papa, thank you that Uh, You have given us such clarity in your word for an area that's pretty gray, pretty um, pressed. And I think one of the biggest challenges that I have faced, and I think all of us have faced, is that we have been taught so well by the world systems of what economics should look like and have little have spent little time really pursuing and, and, and trying to understand your economy. And so I'm just really appreciative that you led Claire and I and our board to spend this time. And I just welcome you to teach us. I, I bring that which I have uh, wrestled with, which I've contemplated, which I've prayed about, I've studied, 
but Lord, I am, I'm, I'm just a vessel. You are the source. And I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to teach us today, to teach me, that we would be able to hear and see what it is that you have for us. Jesus, on numerous times, said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Might we be those kind of people today who have eyes to see you and your kingdom, to recognize your economy, to begin to recognize the world's economy in contrast, and to hear your heart for others. Because when it's all said and done, it's all about loving you and loving others. Help me now as I share. Might we be um, able to hear you in Jesus' name. Now, in my opinion, the Bible is very, very clear that it's God's heart to supply and provide for the needs for his children. When a parent or parents do not extend appropriate care to their children of the necessities of life, there's an organization called Child Protective Services that will step in and remove those children from that or those parents so that those necessities for life can be met. And I want to suggest to you that God is much more concerned for us and he is much more resourced to provide for us than Child Protective Services or any human parent. Listen to these words from Jesus. Matthew seven eleven. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then Matthew six twenty five twenty six, a passage we've touched on. I tell you, don't worry about the food or drink you need to live or about the clothes you need to wear. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Look at the birds in the air. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, but your heavenly father feeds them and you know that you are of much more worth to him than the birds. But God is not only committed to providing what we need, he is committed to providing abundantly above our needs. Listen to Ephesians 3:18-20. Paul says, "I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all God's children what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love and to know that love to experience that love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. Claire and I were uh, praying on Friday night. We, Friday night's our date night. And uh, we were had spent some time uh, just being together, talking, enjoying uh, the weather in uh, Lake Medina. And um, we were praying and we were talking about the church and the facilities and the needs, uh, the financial needs for that. And in the midst of praying, she says, Lord, I've got faith for this, but I don't have faith for that. Now, Randy, if Randy has faith for that, then that's cool. And I, I was reminded of, of this passage. And in that particularly, I said, well, Clara, I can imagine God doing that for us. I can imagine God providing that. And the text says that he can do above and beyond what we can imagine or think. Yes, in relationship to uh, church issues, but also in relationship to our personal lives. So I think a significant question that we have to face, if these are true, that it is God's heart to provide for us abundantly, then why is it that so many Christians lack money in their lives? Why is it so tight? Why are they so challenged? Why are we all so often challenged? I have a couple of answers for you. 
You may or may not like them. It's what I have. Scriptures teach that God is a sovereign God. That means that he is in control. That while he is sovereign, we're also told that the world and we as his children live within the domain and the rulership of Satan. God's kingdom is present, but so is the kingdom of darkness. When Adam and Eve sinned and fell, a consequence for that sin was a rulership of sin, brokenness, pain, and death. It is my understanding that the first answer to why Christians have so little money is the same answer as to why there is evil in the world and why bad things happen to good people. We live in a fallen world that is under decay and that is ruled by a spirit of sin, evil, and death. Now, I know that some of you, that won't satisfy you, but that is my understanding. The second answer as to why there is often a lack of money in Christians' lives, I would suggest is that many Christians are living according to the world's economic systems that which is ruled by a spirit of mammon rather than living according to God's economic systems. Which is why we're taking the time to teach on this significant topic. Which is why our, our teaching was not just to teach on the tithe. We, we started in April and we're going to go till the end of July and the tithe was one Sunday. God has a whole lot more to say about money. And particularly relative to these distinctions between these two economic systems, the world's and God's. The world's economy is based on, as I've suggested, exchange and buying and selling. God's economy is based on receiving and giving. And if you have not been here to hear those talks, please, please go to the website, uh, download the talks and listen to them. And if you were here and you still haven't grasped the distinction between those two elements, then I would encourage you as well. Go get those, uh, those sermons and listen to them again and maybe again and maybe again. One of the distinctions in these two economies is that the spirit of mammon tempts, to, uh, tempts us to believe that money is our source and that if we're going to be secure we need to have enough. And how much is enough? Never is enough. So to have more money. If we're going to be secure, if money is our source, then we've got to have lots of it. As much as we can get. In fact, we need more than that. That's the world system. The spirit of mammon also tempts us to believe that our happiness is based on money and what it can give. And there's a result of these attitudes and beliefs, even for us Christians, that we can find ourselves desiring going after more and more, and as a result, living in bondage and living beyond our means. God's economy teaches us that God is our source, And that as a result, we can be secure, content, and at peace with what God gives. Paul is a a wonderful example of someone who grasped this truth. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. The secret that Paul speaks of there, I believe, is the secret that God is our source. And that he is the provider of our needs. 
Those passages that we looked at a moment ago and touched on about his heart and intention to provide for us is crucial to grasp. But we also need to recognize that the level at which we anticipate, desire, or want our needs to be met may be different than the kingdom dynamics that he needs for us. I think there's an issue there. In the American society, we have been taught by the spirit of mammon that we are entitled to our own nice home, We are entitled to nice things, clothes, nice clothes, good food, that might mean healthy or the ability to eat out, whatever that is for you, good food. We also have been taught that we are entitled to time and money for entertainment and leisure. I'm sorry, however, that I may need to burst your bubble, and that is that the Bible does not promise any of those things. They're fine. Many of us are experiencing them. That's not what God promises. Listen again to what God promises. To make all grace come to you in abundance so that you may always and under all circumstances and whatever the need be self-sufficient possessing enough to require no aid or support and furnished in abundance for every good work and charitable donation. Does it say anything in there about a house? Does it say anything in there about entertainment? Does God probably want to provide a home for you? I think so. I like my children having a home. It's important to me that my married children have some place to live. I wouldn't want them out on the street. I would take care of them. I would bring them in. But the level at which we have accepted an entitlement mentality that it needs to look a certain way is no different than the Jewish culture of Jesus' day where they looked and they believed that those who were wealthy were blessed by God. Those who had a lot is God's blessing. And if you didn't have a lot, then you were condemned by God. That is just wrong biblical exegesis. God wants us to live in abundance. Abundance. But it may not, that abundance may not look like what we look. And if we have never settled the question of how much is enough, then there is no way for there to be an abundance. Because we always need more. If we have identified with God's Holy Spirit and prayed and wrestled and determined how much is enough, then there is abundance. There is surplus. It is possible you may have to live in a smaller home. It's possible maybe you can't buy as new a car as you own. It's possible you may not be able to eat out as often as you would like. It may mean that you can't wear as nice of clothes or get new ones as often. But God is committed to meeting your needs in abundance. But we have got to identify, we have got to incorporate him into the question, how much is enough? tell you, Claire and I are wrestling with this. We're, we're, we are trying to find that. And we've, we've, he's given us a plan. We're working it right now, and it's hard work. But we're working it. It is our goal to live according to that Corinthian passage, to where there is abundance for every good work. That's what we're trying to target. God's word also clearly promises that if we will seek first... Above all else, God's rulership and his ways, he will provide for all our needs. And all these things will be added to you. By the way, God is a very, very rich Papa. There is no end to his resources. And like any loving parent, he loves to lavish gifts good gifts on his kids so it is not 
inappropriate to see rich Christians. We should never look at them and say, well, they're, they're living surely outside their circle. No, only each individual person can determine how much is enough for them. I am not here to make a decision for the Gaffords. I will not communicate in these next two weeks what's enough for them or for the McKays as, the, as a new young couple or my children. Claire and I are responsible for us to hear God's voice on what is enough for us. And we're responsible for that. Now, there is a challenge with the receiving of God's good gifts. If the children are spending all their time away from home, seeking bigger houses, more stuff, and more toys, they're not going to be around to receive and benefit his love. The issue for God is always, the issue for God is always, the issue for God is always, where is our heart and our affections? If they are for him and for his ways, then he is free to lavish us with gifts and blessing because we will not be tempted to worship the gift rather than the giver. If, however, our heart and affections are upon the things of this world, looking to money as our source, then for him to lavish us with gifts and blessing could cause even greater worldliness, greater separation from him, and ultimately greater pain and loss on our part. One of the purposes of the tithe is to test our heart. If we withhold the tithe for whatever reason, it tells the Father that we are not ready for more money. If we are not able to steward the little that he has given us, and many of us, it is little, and there's a couple in here that is way too little. But if we have not are not able to steward that which he has given us, why would we think that he should give us more that we will also not steward well? Now, I do know that some people, none of us here in this room, but some people say, well, if God would just give me more money, then I would be able to tithe. But it doesn't work that way. The tithe is first. Another word for it is called first fruits. In an agricultural culture as the Old Testament was, that meant that harvest time came. They brought in the stuff, sometimes probably in in incremental times. I'm not an agriculturalist, so I don't know. But I think even harvest sometimes, some fruits are ready now, everything. But other fruits come ready. They were to bring the first fruits. So the the first part of our checks, not the end. The first part of the month, not the end. Or however that might need to work for you. Before God can bless us with more, we must learn to be faithful with the little. We must answer the question, how much is enough? Close the circle of our finances so that when God gives us more, it will be available for his kingdom purposes rather than more stuff for me. That's kingdom economics as compared to the world's economics. And they are very different. And we have not been taught much about God's economy. Why is it that we are experiencing a lack and so little in many homes? The enemy is robbing. Flat out. The enemy is at work or at war. But also in many homes, the lack is there because we're not living according to God's economy. All right. Let's move on. I want to look at Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at a text of material that we previously had done a little bit as a, as a group. Um, 
and I want to talk about this. It's actually a passage that is sometimes labeled the unfaithful steward or manager. So if you have a Bible, Luke uh, 16, Jesus tells the story to his disciples about a rich man and that man's manager or steward. Luke 16, 1 through 8. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So he called him in and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do? Since my master is taking this position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Wait, I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted sensibly. I don't know what your translation says, but I did some work on that word. It was important to me. <laughs> what, what does it say? It says he, was, he praised him because he had acted sensibly. For the sons of this age are more sensible in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. All right, the first part of this story is pretty easy to follow. There's a man, he works for somebody, very rich man. He's been caught uh, in some form of theft or squandering of the rich man's possessions. Uh, the man has probably done this for a long time. You don't probably get to that kind of a level or position without it having been a, a long course. He's probably older. He's grown accustomed to living well. And he realizes that it's going to be pretty difficult to get another job like that. His name out there, small communities. We're not talking about a city of San Antonio where you can go get another job, you know, across town or move to Austin. We're talking about a community of, you know, 500 people, 200. A little hard to get a job there. So he comes up with this plan for how he's going to survive after he's fired. He calls in the man's debtors and he reduces what they owe the rich man with the intent and hope that this would make the people appreciative to him and then pay uh, that appreciation would pay off in the future. Okay, that's the easy part. Now here comes the hard part. The rich man learns of the steward's deeds and he praises him for what looks like cunning to us, looks like deceit. But I was able to go get some resource and some help. It's a passage that has always bothered me that I have never worked on before, felt it important because it's a very significant entirety passage about money. I went and got some help. Um, Donald Craybill, a sociologist and biblical scholar, wrote a book called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And he helps us understand this parable along with a lot of other things that seem really upside-down or weird to us. And he gives some very clear cultural and historical background information. Now, we need to note that in verse 14 of this chapter that we're told that not only is Jesus speaking to his disciples, but there's Pharisees, there's religious leaders that are present that are hearing this. And in that, path, in that verse, uh, Luke tells us that these leaders, these Pharisees, were lovers of money. That's an important piece of information in this passage. They were given over and ruled by a spirit of mammon. That's important here. Jesus is talking about the world's economy and God's economy. He is attempting, he's telling a story to teach us about how we're to live in God's economy. By exposing the world's economy. That's helpful to just think about that in the context of this. That's the point that he's trying to make. So here's some information for you. Old Testament law posed very significant challenges for money-hungry Pharisees. 
So in order to not be hindered, they search the scriptures for loopholes. Right? We, we all know that we're trying to find loopholes so that we don't have to pay levels, certain levels of taxes. Right? We've talked about that. This is what they're doing. So they not only looked for loopholes, but because they were religious leaders and had the ability to interpret the scriptures, they also created their own rules and regulations that allowed them to get around some of the biblical law. And Jesus addresses those on dozens of occasions. We don't see them very well. But the disciples, when they picked uh, wheat on a Sabbath, um, was not a violation of scripture. It was a violation of religious law, pharisaical interpretation. On and on it could go. This is another one of those. So here they are. These Pharisees want to earn money. They are money hungry and they need ways to do that that are not so obvious to the people around them because, of course, they're religious leaders. So it is clear throughout the Old Testament books of law, particularly Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that when you lend money, you cannot charge interest. Really clear. I, I, I pull up the word interest and passage after passage after passage after passage. You cannot charge interest to your kinsmen, your brother, your kinspeople. Guess who you can charge interest to, though? Those outside of Israel. But what we see here, what's happening here in this, these are people dealing within the system of dealing with kinsmen. There's a one verse caught my attention, Leviticus 25:37 says, "Do not charge interest on money you lend to your kinsmen or make a profit on food you sell them." So, if you're a grocer in Israel, you can't make a profit on selling food. Wait a minute. i got to earn a living. How am I going to feed my family? God had other elements in, involved in his economy. That was his rule and his law. And there's a reason for that. And we wrestle with selling stuff on eBay or on Craigslist and wanting to make sure that we get what it's worth. Or buying something that's less than it's worth. We've been trained by the world. So in this passage we see God's economy at work. Give money, loan money without interest and sell food without profit. The spirit of mammon however says charge interest and make a profit. So to get around that. The Pharisees created the law of immediate necessity. The law of immediate necessity. If someone borrowed money for the purpose of meeting an immediate need, such as food for themselves, for their family, even a business need that was immediate, they could not be charged interest. But if the borrower wanted the money for a purpose other than that which was an immediate necessity, such as money for a vacation or a business need such as inventory, that they would then sell to others, then interest could be charged. Keep in mind, that's, that's not Old Testament law, that's Pharisaical uh, legalism. Pharisees put this law of immediate necessity into place so that they could work with stewards of the rich who would charge interest to people and then pay a cut to the Pharisees. Stewards who managed other people's wealth and supplies, having that surplus available to them, would lend the master's stuff at interest, usually without the master's knowledge. Stewards then were front men for the Pharisees, even as the sellers in the temple were. We touched on that one of the weeks. These front people allow the Pharisees to still look religiously good, but in fact underneath, how many times did Jesus talk about inside and underneath, they are mammon-dominated money hungers. Money, what's the word, mongers? Whatever that word is. I don't have it in my notes. I don't even know where it is. So, 
in Jesus' story, when the master learned that the steward was involved in pilfering and wasting his goods, the steward was called to account. Show me what you've been doing. The steward then, out of fear, called the master's debtors and returned to them the interest that he had charged. In doing this, he bought favor from the debtors for his future needs. And the master then praised him, not for being crafty or deceitful, but for doing what was right, in returning the illegal interest he had charged that was intended to line his and the Pharisees' pockets. Now, that is an interpretation. It's what this gentleman told to suggest some biblical historical information. I was not able to have time to find and locate that outside of his book. But it sure makes sense out of the text. And it makes sense out of what we see. Jesus Jesus is coming after the Pharisees all the time for their money-hungriness. So I I submit that to you. That is a, a possible interpretation. In this passage, the Pharisees are the sons of light and should have been protecting the common person through godly interpretation of the law, but instead they were interpreting the law in such a way as to enrich themselves at the expense of the common person. Jesus says that the sons of this age, in this case the steward, acted more sensibly by removing the interest from the debt than the Pharisees, the sons of light, for approving of and participating in stealing. And again, we have to keep in mind this passage in its entirety, Jesus is teaching his disciples about these two economic systems. So let's continue. There's a couple more verses in here that are just difficult to understand, but I believe in light of this context will help us. Verses 9 through 13. Of Luke 16. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, those you have favored may receive and welcome you into the everlasting habitations. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, And he who is dishonest and unjust in a very little thing is dishonest and unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the case of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not proved faithful in that which belongs to another, who will give you that which is your own, that is, the true riches? No servant is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stand by and be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Do you see the context of that verse now? Let's walk through each of these verses. Verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, those you have favored may receive and welcome you into the everlasting habitations. The unrighteous steward had made friends through the means of unrighteous mammon to secure favor for himself on earth. He was hoping to be welcomed into people's homes because he had reduced the debt that they had owed, that they believed that they had owed to the previous boss, his previous boss. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Rather, use, do not use money for personal gain and security, but rather, he encourages us and his disciples to use the means of unrighteous mammon to bless and aid others, which will secure favor for us, but not favor on earth, as in the case of the unrighteous steward, but in favor in the future life at home in heaven 
where we will be welcomed with thanksgiving from those we have helped while on the earth. I think that's been a confusing verse to many of us. And I think if we, again, if we're, if we're, there's two economies Jesus is talking about. Don't do it this way. Don't use money for the purpose of getting favor and personal gain. Lesson one. Instead, lesson two, use money to gain favor by helping and caring for others and blessing others. And your favor, not the thank you on earth, but the favor in heaven that we get when God applauds us and says, well done, good job. You used unrighteous mammon very well. You've been faithful. I'm proud of you. Claire. Benjamin, can you turn the mic on? Okay. Please don't think I'm in any way boasting. I'm not. This is just, God, I'm 52, so this is not relevant anymore, okay? But when I was a, a young girl and I became a Christian, I was very popular and I was very cute and I was really fun to be with. And I knew that was a gifting that God had given me. And so I used it to evangelize my friends. I used my popularity, my, my personality, my good looks for God's kingdom. I used it. I did not use it for my own personal gain. Now, before being a Christian, I did. Did a lot of that stuff, okay? But as I realized these were gifts of God that I was to use in that way, people who are super intelligent, and whatever gift God has given you, super creativity, whatever, God wants you to use it for him, for his kingdom, advancing it for his kingdom, not for your own use. So this is broadening this thing about the money thing, but it, it was an example that, I mean, okay, I, got, I see how that works. And um, I really do believe that there are people in the kingdom of God that got in there because I used my goods. <laughs> in a way to woo them and attract them to meet my Savior. And so the heavenly reward is not just good job, Clara, but it's going to be good job, look at these people here that were touched, encouraged, wooed into the kingdom. And I, that's how I want to use money, don't you, you know, to do that. Okay, that was it. Thanks. All right, verses 10 through 12. I'm almost done. we just got a page left here. Verses 10 through 12. Anyway, you may have to think about that one. You may have to go back to the passage. You may want to get, download the sermon and hear again. What was it? What did he say? Or that, or I've got an extra set of notes if anybody wants to buy them. <laughs> uh, sorry, I mean, I'll give them to anyone who wants them. Verse 10 through 12. Strike that from the, the uh, tape, please. He... It's immediate necessity, then no interest. Okay. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is dishonest and unjust in a very little thing is dishonest and unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the case of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true riches. And if you have not proved faithful in that which belongs to another, who will give you that which is your own? That is true riches. Again, in the context of this whole section, Jesus is teaching on living according to God's economy. What does he mean by the very little thing? We've heard the word tithe. We've heard money. I would like to advocate that what's clearly here is unrighteous mammon. Because he says it one way and then he says it again. And instead of using the word in a little thing, he says in the case of unrighteous mammon. Now, he could be making a distinction and saying one thing and then saying another thing. That is possibility here. I would like to advocate that what I understand 
him to be primarily describing here and saying clearly is if we have not been faithful with money, unrighteous mammon, that which is used for the primary means of buying and selling in exchange. If we've not been faithful with that, we can't be given more. We can't be given spiritual truth. We can't be given more resources to spend inappropriately. Now, I would also agree with Joyce. I think in God's mind and heart, he sees the tithe as a very little thing. It's a test. We're, just, we're told that in Malachi. It's a test. It's a very little thing. But how we prove ourselves faithful with that very little thing allows us to be faithful with more. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. And 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 again, there's there's a biblical principle, and the principle is simply God gives us opportunities to be faithful with little things before He's able to give us bigger things. That that is the, that is the truth principle that's there. And then He does, and and I would agree with Daniel. He clearly then says, and as in the case with money. Now, it also says, if you have not proved faithful in that which belongs to another. Way back when, at the very beginning, we said that money does not belong to God. Though that's what we normally think. We said wealth and riches belong to God, but money belongs to the spirit of mammon and the world system. But we have to use it. We, we cannot live in society today and not buy and sell. Unless we do it in our heart. We've got to use it. The question is, are we using it righteously rather than unrighteously? So there's a lot there, I think, to wrestle with. I would advocate that if you want to be blessed by God, if you want to have a great marriage, if you want to have great kids, including through their teen years, if you want to have friends and people involved in your life, if you want to be at peace regarding your job or career or future, if you want to lead in God's church, then be faithful to God in the little things, including money. First of all, give God what is God's. The 10%, the front end, is not yours. It's God's. It's holy. It is dedicated to destruction. I don't think you touched on that one, right? A little bit. Dedicated to destruction. If you don't give it to God, it's going to get lost some other way. Can't keep it and keep it. So first of all, in a little thing, be faithful to give God what is God's. I would also say give the government what is theirs. I would then say get your finances in order, get your circle closed, and begin to generously give above your tithe to needy people as well as ministries that are doing a good work. We need to be faithful with the little things, including money, and then God will be able to entrust to us bigger things. And then in this context again, verse 13. No servant is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stand by and be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, the story from the beginning, and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men 
is detestable in the sight of God. The way money is used unrighteously on self is detestable to God. Not money. Money's an inanimate object. Money's no different than these pieces of paper. They've got different pictures on them. Again, the heart before everything else, it all comes down to the heart. What is first in our lives? Who is our source? What are we trusting in to help us make it through life? If God is our master, then we can expect all our needs to be met abundantly. But if we're looking to anything else to make us happy, to bring us security, to give us importance or worth, it will all fail and come tumbling down someday. One of the biblical uses of money is the meeting of personal needs. But potentially, not needs according to the world's economy or standards but needs according to God's economy and God's standards. And that's going to require trust in him and a humility of contentment with what he gives. Let's pray. Papa, my sense is is that um, there's stuff here for us to chew on, to meditate on, to consider. And I welcome you to uh, spur us <laughs> to good works, to get that spur out with its spiky pokes and poke us. Papa, I confess that I have lived practically the entirety of my life according to the world's economy and not according to yours. That I wrestled this week with living according to your economy. But I also confess that that's where I want to live. And if that's where I want to live, then I need to be willing to die to beliefs that I have about entitlement, about homes and stuff and leisure time. And that what it simply means is that I just need to let you be Lord, ruler, leader in charge it doesn't mean that I have to choose to live in poverty or in the inner city I don't have to choose to give away all my clothes and keep one set I need to ask you what do you want me to do about my clothes what do you want me to do about my house what do you want to do about our boat what do you have in mind for Clara and I on how we're to live within the circle of your provision. And Lord, each one here needs to answer that question. If you are Lord, as we so readily pray in our prayers, then you need to be Lord. And I know that you have not been Lord in areas of my life, and I am very, very, very sorry. And I want that to change. Jesus teaches us to pray, Oh God, 
let your kingdom come. Let your rulership, let that which you have willed and spoken in heaven be accomplished here on earth in my life, through me, in me, and around me. Let your kingdom come. Rule me. Rule us. That the surplus, that that abundance that you long to pour out, you are not hindered. Money is not a problem for you. Homes, houses, lands is not a problem for you. What's a problem for you is that we don't live our lives according to your principles. And I'm very sorry. So I just welcome, Lord, you to be near my friends, my family, as we wrestle through what does it mean to live according to your economy. Lord, there are some unique passages in the scriptures, particularly in Jesus' parables at times, that are hard to understand. They were hard for them to understand. They're hard for us to understand. But your Holy Spirit promised that he would teach us all things. Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things. Lord, teach us about your principles. Where I'm askew here, I am way okay with you lining me back up in a different way. Father, let us be men and women of the word who go back to see if these things are so rather than just having a preconceived notion or a decision. Well, that's not right. Or that that's right. Thanks, Papa. I'm just going to invite you, just take a moment, just a moment, to, to be vulnerable with God, if you're able, and just say, Lord, what do you want to tell me out of this today, at this point anyway? Is there anything you want to highlight, anything that was said, any ideas that popped into my head? Is there anything that you want to highlight right now? Well, before I walk out and do what all I'm going to do, there's something you want to say to me through your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your speaking voice. And uh, I welcome these uh, seeds of your voice to be planted, watered, and germinate in the fruit of your kingdom that you long for in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, some of you may need help. You may be stuck, possibly. Something's happening with you in this whole series. Um, things you're uncomfortable with things that you think maybe you're hearing him say, it might be good to share that with someone else so that you're not alone with those thoughts. Um, And we would love to be a part of that. Community group's a good place, but here after the service, we'll have some folks up here that would love an opportunity to pray with you, to talk with you, to hear what God's saying or doing in your life, to encourage and bless that, or maybe to give some words of... Um, encouragement or words of hmm, I'm not so sure about that one so I welcome you to come on up um, quickly report very fast we did sign a lease on Friday for the property at Bandera and Eckert um, everything that we asked of them they kept doing except one everything I mean the the low rent for the whole year and uh, all that. They they still have only allocated um, $5,000. I don't know if I even said this last week for building out, the making the building ready. However, the reduced rate of rent and what they're allowing us to pay per month here and, and rent what it will be next year at about 4400 Right now it's about twenty-four. That equals $29,000. So if that's not God and favor, I don't know what it is. I'll take it until that comes along. So they gave us five grand in the bucket for here. You can spend this this way. But they also reduced our rent and have provided through the year $29,000 over over normal rent. However you want to pull it. That's pretty cool. So uh, that being said, I have a key in my pocket. 
uh, for the space. We still have to wrestle with the city a little bit. We did hear from the city this week that it, it should be good to go. We, it, what we're talking about doing with the size of the auditorium and chairs and things of that nature should be good to go, but we still have to actually get documentation and sign-offs and stuff like that. Whoa. So um, welcome uh, and invite you all. We're going to, after probably about 20 minutes from now, 30 max, we're going to go ahead and head over to the space. It's at Eckert and Bandera Roads. Uh, there's a gas, as you go up Bandera, there's a, a gas station right on the right on the corner, and then there's an L-shaped building directly behind it on the right far corner as you're going uh, outside the loop, and it's the corner space. It's tan, the building is tan and green. Milano's uh, Italian restaurant is right on the, is an end cap uh, as you turn in where the gas station is. So if you would like prayer, uh, someone to talk to, we are having folks up here that would love to do that for you.